I would like you, I will ask you to stand for the reading of the words. We'll be in Acts chapter 9, and we'll be starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrests of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The man with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the straight street to the house of Judas, and, there you will, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now, and I have shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I have men, heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. And he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. It's the word of the Lord. Now, road trips don't always work out the way you intended. When I just moved to California, it was about 15 years ago, something like that, 18 years ago, um, my family came over, actually my parents came over, and they had done the same thing in Florida, where I lived first, and in New Jersey, and now I was in California, and they obviously wanted to see how I was doing, but they also wanted to get to know a little bit more of the land around us. So we did one of those famous trips through the southwest of the United States. Most of you have done it, or parts of it. You go up the coast, you go to San Francisco, you go to the Sierras, you go to the national parks in Utah. Uh, beautiful areas. So I had, um, up, this was my second car that I ever bought in the United States. My total, I spent, on my first three cars, I spent $5,500, not per car, 
in total. So I was driving a clunker. I was an old blazer, and we went into the Sheras. And I had asked my dad to drive because I'd been driven quite, quite some time, and my dad wanted to try it because he never gets to drive a 4x4. So he was all excited about it, and he was driving. So we're going up the hill in uh, Kings Canyon National Park, and the slope is pretty steep. It was October, so it was not all that crowded on the road. But my dad feels like the, the, tr the truck or the car or the SUV, whatever you want to call it, the blazer, kind of slowing down, kind of not able to really pull its, its way through. So I'm telling my dad, I say, Dad, even though it's an automatic, you can downshift it. It will make it a little easier to go up the hill. So that's what my dad does, and he grabs kind of the handle, and he jerks it, and he pulls it, and before he knows it, he is actually in reverse. <laughs> so if you've ever done that, you know you come to a pretty abrupt stop and you hear a lot of grinding and, and, and noises. So my mom pretty much flies over me because she was sitting behind me in the passenger seat. I'm with my nose on the dashboard, and my dad is panicking as to what is going on. So he says, you know, I think I'm not really cut out for this. Maybe you should drive again. So he says, why don't we just switch? So I get out of the car. My dad gets out of the car, but before he gets out of the car, he puts the truck into park. <laughs> or at least that's what he thinks he's doing. In reality, he's putting it in neutral while he walks out. So since we are on a pretty steep incline, the car starts rolling back while we're both looking at what's going on. My mom is still sitting in the, <laughs> in the back seat, rolling down. <laughs> so I have to run really fast to hop in the car, fortunately before the curve kind of appears and the big trees where she could be slamming into. But again, <laughs> did not quite work out the way we had intended. Paul's road trip that we just read about did not really work the way that he had intended either. Now, while me and my family, or my family and I, were on vacation visiting some of the most beautiful places in the United States, Saul had a totally different reason for his trip. Saul's reason was that he wanted to round up followers of the way, which are Christians. And he wanted to take them back in chains and drag them off from Damascus to Jerusalem to have them tried and executed. Now, this was not a hollow threat. This was not Saul flexing on his Instagram account or his Twitter account. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, neither do I, but my kids thought that this was a good illustration. <laughs> But again, it was no hollow threat. As a matter of fact, the first time that Saul shows up in the Bible is at such an execution. Many of you are familiar with the story of Stephen. Stephen was one of the first guys that kind of the second generation leaders. When the apostles had too much work to do and they couldn't do it, they brought in a bunch of people to help them and Stephen was one of them. Stephen was very successful, not just in what he was originally called to do, which was giving food to the widows. He was actually having a good ministry as well. He performed miraculous signs and healings, and, and there were a bunch of Jewish people around him that were not very happy with him. So they fabricated some bogus charges against Stephen. Sounds familiar, right? Something similar happened to our Lord Jesus. And they go to the, to the, to the Jewish leaders and they said, this guy is just, you have to do something about him. So Stephen gets arrested, and he's on trial before the ruling council. 
And he gives one of the most beautiful sermons that I think you can find in the Bible. You can find it in uh, the book of Acts, starting chapter seven, uh, starting chapter six, moves on to chapter seven. As Stephen is kind of concluding his sermon, the people, the Jewish people, getting the leaders are getting more and more agitated, and this is what's happening to them. They say they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. They rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, in doing so, you know who is the leader down here. That was kind of an, an action of respect. So Saul, by no means, was an innocent bystander in this. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Then it goes on to say that Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Then we move on to chapter 8 and it says, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and they buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. Now, it's hard to make sense of this kind of violence. And I think if we contemporize this, the only thing that I can come up with is that this was kind of ISIS-like behavior. The same brutal repression that we saw play out in their so-called caliphate, justified by their extreme version of religious seal is what we are reading about in chapter 7 and 8 in the book of Acts. It's maybe even more, it's maybe even harder to understand that this man Saul, and sometimes I will use him, his other name Paul as well, uh, I kind of use them inter, interchangeably, but I'm trying to stick with Saul because of the fact that in this story that is what he's called. But it is hard to understand that this man Saul would later in life write things like this. If I could only speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but did not love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I did not love others, I have gained nothing. In Philippians chapter 2, he writes, Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and with one purpose. Do not be selfish. Do not try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Do not only look out for your own interest, but take the interest of others into account as well. And in Colossians 3, he writes, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, 
you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love that binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from the Lord Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. I've read in articles that ISIS was joined by people that kind of fitted into three categories. The first category they described were the people that were disenfranchised, somehow ostracized in the areas and the environments where they lived and grew up, and now they found a common place and a purpose. The second group were the people who were just violent in the darkest sense of the word, and ISIS provided them a way to express this. The last, and believe it or not, the smallest group were the religious zealots. Paul fits into this category. He was a religious fanatic, fully committed to the Pharisaic form of Judaism. Saul was born in Tarsus, and Tarsus was a city in Asia Minor, right on the Syrian border. Today, it would be on the border between Syria and Turkey. In those days, this city was a very distinguished city. It was famous for its university. It, was one, it had one of the three great universities of the ancient world. The other universities were in Athens and in Alexandria, Egypt. They were kind of like our current day Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Saul's father was a Roman citizen, but he was a Jew as well. So he passed on both Judaism and citizenship, Roman citizenship, to his son. There's no doubt that his father was a Pharisee as well, and therefore Saul inherited the Pharisaic tradition. He studied Judaism in Jerusalem at the highest levels under a very well-respected teacher named Gamaliel. His studies would require him to memorize the entire Old Testament, practice debating for hours, and open himself to questions and answer sessions that were long and deep. Saul had covered all his bases in Judaism. And he writes about himself in Philippians in the following way. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I'm a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Intelligent, educated, focused, ambitious, zealous, devout, arrogant, angry, murderous, and dangerous are some of the words that described young Saul as he traveled to Damascus that day. 
And as he is getting closer to his final destination, all of a sudden, he experienced this intense light from heaven. It shines down on him and, and he falls on the ground. Now, I have seen artists try to capture this scene in paintings, in sculptures, in movies, and even in comic books. But I am sure that none of them will do justice to what was going on at that moment. Because it's clear to me that this was no ordinary light. Not even a focused beam of light like a laser. This was the light of the world. Later on, Saul writes in one of his writings as Paul that he had seen the risen Christ. And as Paul lies on the ground, a voice is asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I just want to take a moment to let the depth and the significance of this question sink in. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, a couple of things stand out to me. Three things, really. First of all, Jesus addresses Saul by his name. And in doing so, he humanizes him. So Jesus does not just see Saul as an enemy, as a crazy person, as a criminal or a murderer, even though he was all of it. To Jesus, Saul was first of all Saul, a person created in the image of his father. God made all the delicate inner parts of Saul's body and knit them together in his mother's womb. God made Saul wonderfully complex. His workmanship was marvelous. God watched as Saul was being formed in utter seclusion, as he was woven together in the darkness of the womb, God saw, saw Saul before he was born. Every day of, God's, of Saul's life was recorded in God's book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And God's thoughts about Saul were precious, and they could not be numbered. They outnumbered the grains of sand. Now, some of you might have recognized what I just said. These are not my words, but they are coming from Psalm 139. So, this morning, if you are wondering how God perceives you, if you think that God defines you by your shortcomings, by the mistakes that you have made, the bad choices that you have made, the things that you have said and the things that you have done that you wish you could take back, the abuse that you have committed or the abuse that you have endured, if you are wondering if God sees you as the bad parent, the unqualified employee, the overweight teenager, the unlovable spouse, the easy catch, the addict, the crook, the liar, or you can fill in your own blank. I want you to know that God first and foremost sees you as you. Danny, Josefina, James, Kyla, Loretta, Brandon, Nevin, all wonderfully made and complex. You see, there's one thing I know. 
Nobody in this building this morning matches the kinds of atrocities that Saul committed. And even if you did, he would still see you for he, he, who he made you to be. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? In preparation of this sermon, I read and reread this question over and over again, and somehow I never could quite read it in an accusatory way. The picture that keeps coming back to me is that of a father kneeling in front of his son, a son who has made some really bad decisions, and he is asking him with a heart full of love, but a heart that is broken as well since he sees the destruction of the choices that are being made by his son. You see, some of you this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. You have been either the father slash parent or the child in this analogy. As a parent, you have watched your child slide down in addiction. And you have pleaded, and you have begged, you have punished, and you have threatened. You have seen your child change, grow distant, and become harder and harder to read. And you come to a point where all you can do is kneel in front of him and ask them, why are you doing this? Again, you might have raised that question to an addicted child or a cheating spouse or an abusive parent. This question filled with love, but also with a sense that things should not be this way. Some of you this morning, really all of us this morning, should identify with Saul, or the child in this picture listening to the voice of God. Why do you keep on sinning? Why do you continue to put other people or other things ahead of me? Why can you not forgive that other person? Why do you keep looking and engaging yourself with that person while you should, you shouldn't, while you know you shouldn't? Why have you not taken full advantage of the grace that I give you? Why do you settle for a mediocre relationship with me while you can have so much more? After all these years of coming to church, why do you know still so little about me? Why do I only get a part of your heart? Why do you not trust me? Why? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus does not ask, why are you persecuting these people? Why are you persecuting the way? Why are you persecuting these new believers? Why are you persecuting the church? No. He's asking Paul or Saul, why are you persecuting me? This seems to be personal to Jesus. And I think this is really important for us to understand. That when we sin, we sin against God. 
When we work against the kingdom of God, we are working against Him. When we lie and when we cheat and when we steal, we lie and we cheat and we steal from Jesus. When we persecute our fellow men, we persecute and abuse Jesus. The opposite is true as well. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 that when we feed the hungry, when we clothe the poor, when we give drink to the thirsty and when we care for the needy, that in essence we are feeding, clothing, and caring for Jesus himself. Now, I don't know how this works. I don't know the ramifications of what I just said. But what I do know is that I do not want to work against Jesus. That I do not want to ignore him or harm him. I do not want to hurt Jesus. I do not want to exploit him. And I definitely do not want to persecute him. I want to feed him and take care of him and nurture him. Build him up and love him. So when Saul is still on the ground, he is asking Jesus. He asks Jesus, because he does not know it's Jesus yet, he asks Jesus, Lord, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And in addressing him as Lord, Saul acknowledges that he is no longer in charge. That whoever blinded him with a light so bright and so dazzling that it can only come from the holiness of God himself is his superior. And Jesus answers him. And this is what he answers. It's Jesus. The one you are persecuting. When I came to here as a student in 1995... Um, I did my internship for the University of uh, Florida, and I was an ex at an extension service in Belglade, Florida, kind of in the boonies. And there was this one guy who uh, had kind of taken me under his wing, um, of which my parents probably would have said, don't hang out with that guy. <laughs> but I found myself on a Friday night in his trailer, because he lived in a mobile home park, and he talked me into using LSD. Now, for those of you who know me, know that I am not a user of drugs. And I really didn't even know what, literally, what hit me. But um, I did it. And for those of you who are familiar with, uh, with what LSD, uh, LSD does, it really blurs the world that is real with the world that is not real. And the other thing that it tends to do, and like I said, I'm not an expert on this, on this topic, so, um, but it kind of makes the emotional state in which you are way stronger than it really is. And for me, that emotional state became very quickly being scared, or actually pure terror. So I found myself in a world that I did not recognize, and all I knew to do at that moment was to pray. And as I was kind of moving through, again, places that I did not know, all of a sudden there was this light kind of coming towards me. And I found myself just kind of clinging on because I kind of see the, the ankles of this person and just kind of clinging on to it. 
And then a kind of an arm extended and grabbed me by the hand and just kind of pulled me and it pulled me right back into where I was, into the trailer, back to reality. There was really no accusation going on. And by the way, I am not advocating this kind of <laughs> behavior to get any kind of spiritual uh, experiences. <laughs> but there was no um, acquisition, uh, accu he was not accusing me of anything. There was no, no anger, there was nothing like that going on. Very similarly, this is what's happening to Saul. There is no long conversation between Jesus and between Paul. There is no reasoning. Jesus is not trying to make his case to Saul as to who he is and why Saul should be stopping what he is doing. The only thing that he tells him is, I am the one you are trying to get rid of. I am the one you are trying to get rid of. And it is at that moment that Saul realizes that he has been wrong all along. That he is on the wrong side of this battle. That he is not just fighting against people. That he is not just fighting against the way. That he is not just fighting against the church. But that he is fighting against God himself. And that brings us back to Acts chapter 5. The chapter that we covered in last week's sermon. If you remember... Pastor James spoke about Peter and the apostles and how, after they, after, and how they declared, after they had been brought in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Rules Council, in which they were told never to speak of this Jesus again, they said, we must obey God rather than any human authority. If you continue reading in that chapter, you will find that there is one man in the Sanhedrin who stands up and says the following about dealing with these pesky Christians. My advice to you is, leave these men alone. Let them go. Because if they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, they will soon be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them you may even find yourself fighting against God. Ironically, the man who spoke these words was Gamaliel, Saul's former teacher. But somehow this wisdom never carried over to Saul. And Saul found himself fighting against God himself. So Jesus straightens him out. Not as a conquering king, not as a warrior out for revenge, but by means of extending grace to him who does not deserve it. In the same way as he has extended grace to me, while I did not deserve it. And he has extended grace to you, while you did not deserve it. And that brings me to my last point this morning, life after blindness. You see, up to this point, it has been a great story. For most of us, it reminds us of our own road to Damascus stories, where God has reached out and made himself known and available to us. I once was blind, but now I see. 
But this is not where it ends. You see, there are two things that I want to point out this morning that are part of life after blindness. The first thing is suffering. You see, God does not promise Saul happiness, good fortune, riches, or an easy life like so many Christians today think that Christianity is all about. God makes only one promise to Saul. Besides the fact that he promised him that Ananias would come. But besides that, he makes only one promise to, God, uh, to, to him, and that is, you will suffer a lot for my name's sake. The rest of Paul's life is a testimony to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he rewrites the following. I have been in prison, put be, I have been put in prison more often. Been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. That's the maximum amount of lashes they thought a person could bear before he would die. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled many journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the city, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claimed to be believers, but were not. I have worked hard and long, and during many sleepless nights, I have been hungry and I have been thirsty, and I have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. You see, Paul's life, after his road to Damascus experience, did not become easier. But it did become more meaningful. It did not become happier but he became holier. So we need, to take this as, we need to take this to heart. Being fully committed to the kingdom of God will lead to conflicts with the kingdoms of this world. The second thing that I want to point out about life after blindness is that grace is not something that is just to be received, but that is to be given as well. Grace is not just something to receive, but to give as well. And in order to make that point, I want you to take a look at the other person in this story, Ananias. You see, the Bible is full of unsung heroes like Ananias. People who just show up in a couple of sentences and sometimes are not even named. But who showcase a real holiness. People like Jethro, Mordecai, Jabez. Abigail, Rahab, and yes, Ananias who deserves to be in this, on this list as well. This man is asked by God to extend grace and to help a fellow that had murdered Stephen, who had executed and jailed many others and was now in Damascus with the purpose to kill and eliminate the, the church by sheer force and violence. What God is asking Ananias to do is unimaginable. And if you have dealt with people 
who have seriously violated you, you do get the extent of this request. And God does this in a very interesting way. He, he is telling Saul, of it, he's telling Ananias, Ananias, Paul is expecting you. I have already told him that you will come, that this will happen. Ananias, you can make me look good by going, or you can make me look bad by refusing. You see, our job as Christians is to be ambassadors, to represent God well, no matter how difficult that might be at times. To forgive the unforgivable, to redeem the unredeemable, to love those who hate us. And God's, God asks every single one of us, will you make me look good? Or will you make me look bad? There's probably no better way to conclude this than with Paul's own words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, Saul became himself like Ananias. And he tells us this, God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sin against them. And he gave us the wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Life after blindness. Sacrifice, suffering, extending grace. There is perhaps no better way to internalize this than to take part in the Lord's Supper, where Jesus illustrates his sacrifice and his suffering, his broken body and his spilled blood, to forgive us the unforgivable, to redeem us the unredeemable, to save us who could not save themselves. James will administer this holy meal this morning. In a moment, he will come up. But when we take of the cup and when we drink, of when we drink and when we eat, I would like to ask you to not just think about what Jesus did for you, but to also contemplate what you might do for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the fact that you are a God that reaches out. That no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how dark the place is, no matter how hard and how often we have offended you or worked against you, you reach down. Lord, you see us for who we are and who you made us to be, and for that we are so thankful. You see potential in us that we not even see in ourselves, Lord. You love us in ways that nobody else can. 
You are a good God, Lord, that is worthy to be followed. Lord, some of us this morning think about our own road to Damascus moments. The moments when it made, became so clear that we needed to follow you instead of to work against you. That we needed to let you take the steering wheel instead of holding on to it ourselves. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit and for your ability to communicate to us in these ways, Lord. For those of us, Lord, who, who have said yes, who have said, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to be your ambassador. I ask you to help us to be good ambassadors. To be ambassadors like Ananias and to be ambassadors like Saul. People who are willing to give all for your kingdom. Lord, this world has too many, and I am counting myself into this group, people who are living the Christian life half-heartedly who are holding back and are holding tight, who are rather live in comfort than in obedience to you. And Lord, for that I would like to ask you to forgive me. Lord, my heart is yours. I do not want to work against you. I do not want to persecute you. I want to feed you. I want to clothe you. I want to love you. I want to be with you. And I want to be an example to this world so that I, in return, can point to Jesus. Lord, let us be a church of people that can say the same thing as Paul said in the latter day of his life. Follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, as we just take these moments of communion, will you make them impactful and will you make this a nourishment that will nurture us deep, deep, deep into our souls and in our hearts, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for the fact that you never give up on us. We love you, Lord. And it's in your son's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.